0: We're getting back into Revelation this morning, Revelation 1. That's the only place we'll be this morning. You can turn there if you want. We're only going to specifically be looking at two verses. Before we go to that, though, let me prime the pump by asking you, as we go through this morning's texts, ask yourself this question, who is in control of your life? Who is in control of your life? And don't just say the right answer right away, but think about that as we talk through these verses We've been out of Revelation for several weeks because of the Christmas season. So just by way of brief review, we're going to be in the last two verses of chapter 1 today. But where we've come, if you remember in verse 1... Yes? What? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you you guys, you know once I was in a, a Sunday school class and the guy, the guy says, you know what kindness is? Being nice to someone is, is uh, seeing a booger on their nose and saying nothing. And being kind is telling them there's a booger on their nose. You know what every one of us did? Went like this and my wife is just informing me that my fly is down. <laughs> so she's being kind, <laughs> not nice. <laughs> and I thank you for it. <laughs> You know, and my wife, my child warned me this week. She says, Dad, the way you sit on that stool doesn't look good. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) For what it's worth, too, I sit on the stool because my back gives me trouble when I stand too long. And it is particularly sore this morning, so sorry. (laughs) Is there any way to redeem this time? (laughs) Anyway. uh, In chapter 1, kind of just a quick rehash of where we've been, verse 1, remember that this whole book, 22 chapters, last book of the Bible, starts by saying God's point in writing this book and in culminating his book of books with this one was to reveal his son. We said if we come out of the book of Revelation knowing about the Antichrist and timelines but not about Christ, we've missed the boat the purpose of the whole book is to reveal Jesus and he's revealed in various ways throughout these chapters but that's the bottom line. We also said it was a unique book because in verse 3, it has a promise that no other book of the Bible or certainly in the New Testament has which is, it says, you're blessed if you read and keep the words of the book. There's a blessing in verse 3 right at the beginning just for being in this book, for considering it and obeying the things that apply to us You remember we said this is given through the Apostle John. This is an old guy. He's at the end of a very long life. This is probably the last of the Apostles, probably in his 90s. And you remember he's been kicked out of what's modern-day Turkey onto this little island off the Turkish coast, Patmos. And, you know, the Romans and the Jews thought they were getting rid of this guy, right? But, in fact, it was in this isolation this prison camp that God gives in this revelation, which far outlives the verbal ministry he had on the mainland. So what was meant for evil turned out for good. And then about halfway through the chapter, chapter 1, John hears a trumpet voice and he turns around and he sees Jesus in heaven. And do you remember? This was a good opening song. He sees Jesus high and lifted up. He sees Jesus shining like the sun. He can barely stand to look at him. And it says his hair and his, his beard are like white wool or snow and his eyes are like flames of fire. His skin glows like bronze. It's in a furnace. Everything about him says glory and in a sense judgment. It's a fearful, fearful vision. Glorious vision. And John falls down. We're going to pick up at verse 17 this morning. We've covered verses 17 and 18 but that'll be our introduction into the last two verses for this morning. John says, When I saw him, When I saw this vision of Jesus in glory, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the key of death and Hades. And you remember we said the keys represent power and authority. I have control, I have power over death and hell. Verse 19, Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. At Verse 19, <clears throat> If you're going to have a breakdown of the book of Revelation, verse 19 is it. Jesus tells John to write down in three different ways. He says, write down the things you have seen, past tense. That's chapter one, most of chapter one. He says, write down the things which are, present tense. That'll be chapters two and three. Remember early on he's talking about the seven churches. It's because he's going to address specifically seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey, and that's the things that are, chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 4, the book of Revelation clearly switches gears. We go up to heaven. Chapter 6, we end up in this period on the earth with all the future judgments to come, and that's the future. So the things which have been, past tense, the things which are, present tense, and the things which will take place after these things, future tense. So Jesus tells John to write down related to past, present, and future. That's his breakdown in the book. If you study through Revelation, you can certainly give a more defined outline than this, but this is the one God chooses to give. My suspicion related to why he chooses to give it this way is because it's a gentle reminder that Jesus is the one who's in control of the past, the present, and the future, You know, literarily, if you study through the book, we can break it down, it makes sense to break it down far more fully than this threefold tenses do. But this is the way God wants us to think of it. Jesus says, write down what has already happened, write down what is currently going on, and write down what I tell you in the future. I think one of the reasons, the prime reason God does that is to remind us that he is in control. Listen to Isaiah 41, 22 and 23. This thought, and if you remember back October, November, when we started this series, we said, almost without exception, there is nothing new presented in the book of Revelation. Almost nothing new. Almost every portion, every chapter of this book is a rehash of Old Testament passages, prophecies, and promises. And out of Isaiah 41, God had said, related to idols, related to false gods, empty gods, gods that are not, God had said in Isaiah 41:22 and 23, let them bring forth these false gods, these idols. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place, future tense. Let them tell us what's going to happen in the future. As for the former events, declare what they were. Tell us what happened in the past. Tell us accurately, history, what's happened. That we may consider them, these idols, and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. God said, in fact, one of the proofs in Isaiah, Isaiah 40 uh, 40 through 50, these chapters are primarily concerned about God's deity in contrast to pagan idols. And he repeats over and over again. One of the reasons you'll know he is God is because he'll tell you not just the past, which most of us can do with some accuracy, and not just the present, which we can look around and see, but he'll tell us the future. And it is by telling you the future ahead of time that he shows he is in control. He doesn't just know the future. He controls the future. And so my suspicion as far as the threefold breakdown of the book of Revelation in verse 19 is it's a general reminder Jesus is saying, I am the one in control of the past, the present, and the future. Jesus wants us to know he is in control. Go to verse 20. Jesus says to John, the mystery of the seven stars... This book is about symbols and then reality. There's a symbol and then there's a substance. So when Jesus says the mystery of the seven stars, John sees Jesus and Jesus really is there and he's really in glory. Jesus isn't a symbol for something else, but he's holding something in his right hand. And those are symbols. He's holding seven stars. And those stars are symbols for reality Jesus is going to tell John about. So he says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. I'm going to explain this to you. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. Bear with me. Uh, Theologically, this isn't a huge issue, but just consider it a work session related on how to look at the scriptures. Uh, The seven stars are seven angels. Jesus there in glory has got seven stars in his right hand. He tells John, these seven stars in my right hand represent seven angels of the seven churches. The Greek term is angelos, angels, angelos. It means a servant, a messenger. So Jesus says these are messengers to the churches, seven messengers to the churches in my right hand. There's two ways to understand this popularly, two ways to understand this. If we say, who are the angels? Who are the messengers? Perhaps the more popular of the two options is to say the messengers, the angels of the churches, are the pastors of the local churches. The stars are angels are pastors of the local churches. If we say, what's in support of this understanding of the verse? The support would be, that we then understand that the pastor of the local church is in Jesus' hand. Jesus is in control of him, so to speak. And therefore, in chapters 2 and 3, each time Jesus writes a letter, he says to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, etc., to the messenger. It makes sense of this baton passing that we saw in verse 1. Do you remember? God the Father gives a message to Jesus, gives it to an angel, gives it to John, gives it to us. It's the same sense of baton passing with the message. Makes sense for that reason. So we could understand this as pastors of the local churches. If you can't tell, I have a problem with this. The problem I have is twofold. The first is that there were no pastors when this was written. In the sense of the term that we use today, if I say pastor, you typically think of a senior pastor of a local church. This did not exist when this was written. It took, frankly, it took hundreds of years for the kind of church hierarchy or church government's governance that we see today to develop and take place. This did not exist when John wrote. If we want to read back into here that there's a senior pastor Jesus is in control of, there was no such thing. It didn't exist. If you look in Acts 15, if you go to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, any place where the New Testament sets out what church leadership is supposed to look like, it says there were elders. In fact, even in Jerusalem with the apostles, there were elders, of the church, along with the apostles. So it's hard to read back pastors into this passage. I don't think it takes. Uh, certainly the people who got this didn't even have a concept for this. Uh, this. This kind of church leadership took hundreds of years to develop. In fact, pressed to its uh, final stage of development is the Roman Catholic Pope, as churches, as, as things developed over time, the elders in the local churches started developing one Thank you. prime leader, a bishop. Then the local churches banded together and they appointed a bishop over them. And because Rome was one of the key churches, the bishop of Rome became quite important. And as time went over, the other, do you guys know your history, any of this? Does this sound familiar? The other key city, Constantinople. Why do we have an Eastern Orthodox church and Roman Catholic church? Because two bishops both said I'm the key man. So you got and this is from that time on, this is probably from the 3 or 400s on, you got a division in the church that existed and it was over who's the top dog. Rome says I am, Constantinople says I am, we don't give and so there was a separation that long ago. But it was the logical conclusion of the of of not following, I would argue, the scripture. Elders in every city. That's the New Testament norm. So I don't think we can read these as pastors of local churches. It just doesn't wash. The other reason I think it doesn't wash is because it's, it's identifying a symbol by another symbol. Jesus isn't telling us, when we see the stars, he wants to tell us, what does that star mean? Uh, not a star is a symbol, and here's a symbol, and here's the meaning. A star is an angel is a pastor. It doesn't make sense with the rest of the passage so I don't think it's a pastor I think it is the second option it's an angel it's a spiritual being an angel if we understand that the stars in his hand are spiritual angels the same use of the term used throughout most of this book it makes sense with the rest of the book remember in verse 1 an angel is going to be part of this baton passing to get the message to John this makes sense it and it's it identifies a symbol with a reality, a star with an angel, a literal angel. It makes sense. The thing that doesn't answer for us or doesn't answer very well is what does that look like? If the stars are angels and each of these church has an angel, in what way or in what capacity <clears throat> Excuse me. did the angel interact with the church to communicate the truth of the letter Jesus was writing to each one? And then I shake my head and I say, I don't know. I don't know. The reason I I go to some length to talk about this is, this is an example, this passage is an example of, if I come to scripture and I've already got an idea of the way things are supposed to be, you know what I do? I read my understanding into the text. I don't let the text tell me what God wants me to hear. I tell the text what it's supposed to say. And when you come to any passage of scripture, far better to say, these are the options. And frankly, there's more than a couple verses or passages like this for me. These are the options. And none of them really satisfies me. I don't see that. I say maybe one looks a little better than the other, but I don't, I'm not 100%. Far better to say that than to say, I believe X, therefore I read the passage and it agrees with me whether it does or not. And literally, if you read commentaries or if you read writing on just about any controversial passage, you'll know that people can make a text say the exact opposite of what it's clearly intended to convey. And they do it because they come to the passage and they say, I believe X and this passage must support my belief. That's not what we want to do. If we are going to humbly come to God and read his word, we ought to be coming humbly enough to say, Lord, what are you saying? And in fact, at the end of every one of these letters to the churches, it says, let him who has ears to hear, hear. You know, if we're humble, and if we're saying to the Lord, like Samuel does, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, I'm not coming loaded with all my ideas or opinions about what you're supposed to mean or say here, God will help us hear, and he'll give us understanding. But when we come in with our opinion of the way it's supposed to be, We end up dictating to God what he should have said and didn't. We twist his words. We don't want to do that. So in the end, this isn't a huge theological issue, but it's one passage that's an example that should remind us, let the scripture speak for itself. Let God say what what he means. And if it's still a little obscure, live with it. That's the way it is. Live with it. Don't reinterpret it. So he's got in that vision those seven Stars are seven angels, seven messengers, and they're in his hand. They're in his hand. If I told you today I've got something in my hand, you know that it's, it's in my possession and it's under my control, right? And that's the thought here too. Jesus says in this vision, the messengers to the churches are in his right hand. That means they belong to me and I am in control of them. These messengers do what I want. They're in my hand. I am in control. We saw in the breakdown of the book, past, present, and future, and we see by the stars in the hand, Jesus said twice, I, Jesus, God, through his Son, I am in control. He goes to the seven lampstands, and you remember in the vision, Jesus, this glorious appearance of Jesus, he's not only got these stars in his hand, but the Place he's standing in is seven golden lampstands. We said maybe they're in a circle, maybe they're in a square. It doesn't tell us, but he's standing in the middle of a collection of seven golden lamps. And these stand for something, these are a sign for something. And he tells us there in verse 20, <clears throat> excuse me, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You remember before, too, a lot of this is rehashed, but he is going to write these letters to seven literal churches in Turkey. We said also, though, these churches probably stand for the church through the ages and for any church at any time. So while they're very specific on one hand, they're also very general. When we see Jesus standing in the middle of these lampstands, which he says are the churches, we should understand this isn't just the seven churches in Turkey at this time. Remember, there were far more churches than this. And there were churches in far more area when this was written than just the portion of uh, Turkey in Asia Minor. They were all around the Roman Empire at that time. So we should understand Jesus standing in the midst, not just of these seven churches, but of his church, of the churches anywhere. It's kind of like the commander of an army standing in the midst of his army. And we're going to see as he addresses each church He's going to do a few things. He's going to praise faithfulness. He's going to promise reward for continued faithfulness. He's going to admonish where needed repentance and change. He's going to threaten judgment or loss or lack. In fact, he's going to threaten removal from service. So here's Jesus standing in the midst of the churches, And he's standing right in the middle. And I think it's supposed to let us know, I'm in the middle. I'm right next to them because I am in control of the churches. Jesus is in control of the churches. He's exercising his leadership by standing there in the midst. And let me develop this just a little bit. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23... When God, through Paul, is describing Jesus in his ministry, he says, He put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Ephesians 1, God says, Jesus is the head of the church. Now, related to this passage in Revelation, we talked about Jesus standing in the midst. He's in control. In this passage, and in Colossians 1 as well, the thought is the picture is a little different, but the meaning is the same. There's a body and there's a head on it. This is one person. The head directs everything the body does. You guys know if you remove anyone's head, in fact, you know, the guillotine in France was a merciful way to kill people because uh, you remove their head instantly. A body without a head has absolutely no life, and it has no ability to be directed. The thought here is Jesus as the head of the body is the one who is in control. You know, your brain and the systems, the nervous system attached to your brain, it controls every element of your body. Some things take place, respiration and heart, take place without your even thinking, but the brain is taking care of all that. And if I move my hand, or if I open my mouth, or if I take a breath... My brain, my head, is telling my body what to do. And in Ephesians 1, that's the picture. It's Jesus is the head of his body. And the thought there is, it's not just the position of authority and glory, but it's the position of control. The body is being directed by the head. Jesus is, giving, uh, is exercising control and giving direction to every element, every cell, every component in his body. In fact, later it says that some people don't grow spiritually because they turn loose of Jesus, the head. It would be like if you cut off a section of your finger, some of the tissue, it's no longer connected to the rest of the body and the head because of that. It just dies and shrivels up. It can't live. And that all of us, if we're going to grow into mature Christians, it's only as we maintain that contact with Jesus, the head. That's the thought. Ephesians 5, when it's describing the relationship in marriage and saying the the husband is the head of the wife, it it trades on the thought that Jesus is the head of the church. It trades on that same relationship or that same understanding. Colossians 1 and 2 say the same thing, that Jesus is head of his body, the church. He is in control. He's exercising control. The body does its part when it's listening to the head. It's the only way we can get appropriate direction. So we've got the breakdown of the book says God's in control of past, present, and future. We've got the messengers of the churches in Jesus' right hand. Jesus is in control of the messengers. And we've got Jesus standing in the midst of the churches themselves. Jesus is in control. Of the churches, I think God wants us to know as we study through these passages and the rest of the book, He's saying, in whatever way you slice it, God in the person of His Son is in control. He's in control. If you move this down to uh, your and my experience from John's, what does it mean? What does any of this mean? What do you do with any of this? One of the questions I ask myself. You and I may not be angels, spiritual beings, but do you and I live like the angels, the messengers in God's right hand? Again, the thought there is Jesus says, I give a command, my messengers obey. They're faithful, they're in my hand, they're under my control. They do what I say. Do you and I, as individuals, live our life like those messengers? Do we see ourselves as under Jesus' control? You know, I confess oftentimes it's easy to say, Lord, I'll obey you. And in the areas in which I want to, I do. And in other areas, I don't. Which in the end, of course, means I'm not in his hand. I'm on my own. And once in a while I say, it looks okay. I have no problem with that. I'll do it. Other times I say, not really what I want to do, Lord. No thanks. Jesus is in control of his messengers. You know, you and I ought to live like that. We ought to live like that, not just in what we think or say, but in what we do or in what we don't do. Is Jesus in control of us as he is over his messengers? And you know, as a church, uh, I'm looking forward to the letters that we'll be reading because uh, they're so great as far as both encouragement but as warning as well. You know, as a church, as well as a Christian, you and I live and serve and breathe and have our being at Christ's pleasure and to do his will. And really the only way you as an individual or I or the only way we as a church can truly honor Christ is to be under his control. It's to be one of those lampstands next to him. It's to be the messenger in his hand. It's to be the person that recognizes and the church that recognizes Jesus is in control. And he should be. And we willingly and gladly submit to that. So that if you and I in our life are saying, Lord, what do you want of me? And if we as a church are saying, Lord, what do you want of us? That's where we need to be. We, you know, it's a terrible thing to live life on your own. Especially if you're a Christian, you're ruined for this world. You know, because you have the Holy Spirit, you can't enjoy the pleasures of sin in this world the way a pagan can. Did you know that? If you've tried it. Yeah, you can't because God will grieve you and he'll make you sad and sorry because he's not going to reward that. He's not even going to let you get away with that, not for long. And as a church in chapter 2, state-of-the-art church, great church, first church that uh, Jesus addresses, Jesus warns him, warns them, I'll take your candle, I'll take your lampstand away. You'll cease to exist. As a testimony for me, he threatens the -the state-of-the-art church in Ephesus. And why? Because they'd lost sight of what he wanted them to have. They'd lost sight. They were going along being a great church. And he said, you're missing it. And I'm going to remove you unless you get back in line." And you guys know if you've looked around at all, this country is full of what I think are spiritually dead churches. I don't think they've got a I don't think they've got a candle in heaven. <clears throat> and you know you get there little by little. It's not one quick decision as a church or as a person to end up with no testimony for Christ. It happens little by little as you give a little ground here and you give a little ground there. You say no to this and then you say no to that. Or we say no to this and no to that. You know, if we fail to put Christ first, truly first, truly first, Christ in his word, and if we don't come to his word humbly to say, Lord, what are you saying? Not so God can agree with my opinions, but so that we humbly say, Lord, what are you saying? What are you requiring? What do you want of me? And what do you want of us? Let me remind you as we close, Lion and Lamb mission statement First part of the year is a good time just to be remembered of this, reminded of this. Lion and lamb is a fellowship of worshiping believers. Fellowship means interaction with each other. Worshiping means God centered. Committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. That means we don't want to play at religion. You know, go get a better game if that's what you're interested in, because I would that's not what we're interested in. Authentically pursuing vital, that means joyful. Full of life, vital relationship with Jesus Christ, and obeying all His commands. We've got to be about all of that, or we're not His church. So we need to ask ourselves the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the things we do, the things we don't do, are these the things God wants us to be about? Am I doing what God wants me to do as an individual? Are we doing what God wants us to be doing as a church? And we've got to hear from him about that because we live and serve at his pleasure. He's in the middle, he's the one in control. Past, present, and future, messengers in his hand, standing in the midst of the churches, he wants us to know. He's in charge, he makes no bones about it. And we can live a joyful, joyful life totally under his control. Briefly in a Bible study Wednesday night. I shouldn't say this. This is probably your dear story. Anyway, somebody my daughter was sharing the gospel with had a problem and it was related to someone else being an authority over me. Because I want to be in control. The truth is, the freest place to be is under Jesus' control. Remember, Paul says in Romans, you're a slave to whomever and whatever you serve. So if you serve sin, you're a slave of sin. You're not free. You're a slave of death. Jesus says, take my yoke on you. That's slavery of a sort. But he says, guess what? It's light and it's free. He, he says you'll find peace for your soul. That's what it means to be subject or under the control of Of King Jesus, it means life and joy and peace. It means fruitfulness here and in eternity. It's a win-win situation. But he is in control and he makes no bones about it. And the best place for us to be is in his hand and with him standing in our midst. Let me close briefly with an analogy. At the end of World War II the Allies were getting ready to reinvade Europe. And if you remember, they had just been kicked out badly. They had just made this miraculous uh, escape at Dunkirk in which they'd salvaged many of their troops and arms. But Germany had just kicked their rear in Northwest Europe and France and Belgium. So D-Day, the Allies are getting ready over months and months of preparation to reinvade, to take back, back that ground they had lost. There was a British general who had really, really done well in North Africa and Italy, Montgomery, Monty. And Montgomery was nothing if not an opinionated man who thought very highly of himself. And he wanted to run the show with the reinvasion of Europe. There was only one problem. He wasn't the supreme commander. Do you know who was? Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was the supreme allied commander. And Eisenhower and Monty butted heads a little bit, but guess, guess who had most of the men and most of the equipment and most involved? The U.S. And so Churchill and Britain told Monty, you're, you're not the head. You're not. Eisenhower is. And so even though it wasn't perfect, it was because there was one supreme allied commander who gave control, and who oversaw everything, and frankly, in this case, took Guy's advice, like Montgomery's and others, and redeveloped the plan. But in the end, Eisenhower was in charge, and everyone knew it. And so after months and months of preparation, under Eisenhower's supreme Allied command, the reinvasion of Europe started. And obviously it was bloody, and and it was certainly not perfect, but it was the beginning of the Allies retaking and defeating Germany. And it happened because one vain guy was willing to say, I'm not in charge. His advice was taken in some cases and was not in others. And the Supreme Allied Commander Eisenhower said, this is the way it is. This is what we're doing and that's what happened. And that was the beginning of the end for Germany. But there was only one head. That's the way it had to be. I think that's one of the reasons why in the local churches, I don't believe there's supposed to be a senior pastor because there's only one good shepherd. It's Jesus himself. And as a church, like the Jewish synagogues, we're not trying to follow one person's lead. We're trying to follow Jesus' lead. And we do that as a group. Let's pray. Lord, what a freeing, joyful, liberating experience to fall down and worship at your feet and say Lord we are not in control you are Lord Jesus you're the author of all life and all that's good and to be in your presence is to experience life Lord every time we follow our own sinful impulses or try and live life on our own we just assure that we're going to experience more death Lord Jesus, thank you that in surrender to you, in joyful submission to you, there is real life and real joy. God, help us to be like those messengers in your hand, quick to do your will. Father, as a church, help us to honor your Son. We think of Matthew 18, that when two or three gather together, you're there in our midst, Lord Jesus, and we ask you to have your way In our lives as individual Christians and in our life as a church, help us to honor you, to hear your word and your will to us and to obey. We want you to be able to say to us, well done, you're pleased. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.